The scripture today comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebel, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, what kingdom can stand? And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has written up, uh, risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of God, and it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Good morning. We are, uh, as Adam mentioned, continuing our sermon series through the book of Mark. And we're looking at different snapshots of Jesus' interactions with uh, the Jewish people, religious authorities, his disciples. And through these kind of snapshots, we're learning more about who Jesus is and who we are and who we're called to be. Um, And this morning, we're going to look at um, kind of an interesting story. It's almost two stories. Um, But but what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus has created something new in us. He has created a a new family with him at the head. So the church, the universal church, the little C church, is a family. And what we're going to see this morning is that those ties are deeper even than blood. So one of my uh, favorite aspects of my job is probably something that um, you're not thinking of right now. and it's getting to officiate weddings. I love weddings. I love the honor of playing the role of officiant. I love the covenant of marriage, the picture of Jesus and his bride, the church, and, and how that applies to us. And, um, but one of the things I wasn't thinking about when I became a pastor that I would do is um, officiating old friends' weddings. So that's kind of an odd thing. Um, one time I officiated the wedding of my seventh grade girlfriend. That was odd. Um, <laughs> I assume to do a lot in my own congregation, but I'd, uh, I've done more than I thought of um, friends, uh, and even a lot of Andrea's old friends, uh, which is funny. A lot of them are unchurched, and through us and her doing flowers and, and me officiating their weddings, um, yeah, it's been an interesting thing. But one of my favorites was actually one of her oldest friends. Um, her name was Aaron, and Aaron was this incredibly talented, is this incredibly talented art purveyor. She, she works in many um, art museums around the country, and she's smart, and she's funny, and she's fun, incredibly talented. And 
Um, so I was very honored when she asked me to do her wedding. We were not, we're super tight. Andrea was going to do some flowers and stuff for them. And so that she thought it'd be a package deal. Um, and so I was excited, but Aaron's story is interesting because she grew up with, um, just her mom, her and her father were estranged. She was alone most of her life and her mom even had mental issues. And so at a young age, Aaron, in a lot of ways, took care of her own mom. She was a mom to her own mom. She had one aunt that she was close with, and that's it. That was her whole family. So I'll never forget meeting with her and her future husband, Brandon, before the wedding. We were talking about logistics and stuff, and I saw this longing in her eyes. And she was excited about getting married. She was excited about the ceremony. But more than anything, she was excited about having a family for the first time. And not just a family of Brandon. Actually, uh, Brandon's family was uh, Irish descent. And his dad had four brothers, and they were five Irish descendant men. Very loud, very obnoxious, very abrasive. Tons of kids everywhere. And I just saw as she talked about this, she was like, I'm going to have a family for the first time. And she was so excited. And so we, we go, it's on, we were in Savannah, Georgia, which is beautiful, not as beautiful as Charleston, but close. And um, we were on the water and these three houses um, that their family had owned for a long time and his family had. And, and these were all next to each other. The, the beautiful mossy oaks everywhere. We do the ceremony. They, they shoot a cannon off when I pronounce them man and wife. It's like this weird family tradition. So, you know, all of these things, right? It was kind of scary. But um, I have this mental image, and it's of Aaron sitting on this long table, right, of all of the family around her, at the end of the meal, and the sun legitimately is setting on the Savannah River, and she's sitting there around all these people, and they're laughing, and they're talking, and it's like she sits back, and she just smiles. And it was like she was there. She was finally a part of this family that she had longed, so longed for, for her whole life. She had found it. To a certain extent, um, we all want what she found in that moment, right? As humans, we, we want to belong. We want to connect. We want to find something that we can pledge our allegiance to or feel a part of, a university, a friend group, a political party, an online community. We're constantly looking for that need to be met. It's almost like we were designed for it, right? And as Christians, we do know that. We, we were designed for it. A, a family is what? A group of people who share common ancestors. The reason Christians are a family is because we uh, believe that we are spiritual ancestors to the people of God. So God has historically worked through a people. The Israelites, God's chosen people, were an ethnic group. They, they were a theocratic nation state, but more than anything else, they were a family. They shared common ancestors. And we are heirs to that and to them and to their story. So we are God's family today as the church. I thought this week uh, often, I mentioned earlier, the ties that bind. What are the things that connect people to one another so deeply that they are bonded together in a way that goes deeper than blood? And I think what separates Christians apart from the world is that we believe that Jesus Christ is the ultimate tie that binds us together. But, but if I'm honest about my own heart and what I've 
witnessed in, in my years of ministry is that we don't often treat one another like family members. We don't often treat one another like brothers and sisters or, or mothers and fathers or, or sons and daughters. Um, or, or we do to an extent, um, but I think when it becomes hard, when the, the, the rubber hits the road almost, that's when we pull back. When we line up completely with one another, uh, one another ideologically, yeah, we'll treat each other's family. Or when we line up together politically, we'll treat each other's family. Or when we see eye to eye, we will. But as soon as one of those things goes away, whichever one is most important to us, we begin to reject our family members, right? I feel as a church, and I'm not saying Hope Chapel, I'm saying the church, Christians, have grown impatient with our family. We've grown increasingly hostile towards one another. And, it, and I, I think... It's important for us to begin to look at each other, one another, look at one another again through the eyes of family and not distrust. And and many of us, and I want to put myself in this, we have conflicting ideas and feelings about family, right? I want to name that for sure. We've suffered abuse, the ravages of addiction, abandonment, brokenness at the direct hand of our families, our biological nuclear families. And, and this can make the idea of a new family in Christ difficult. So, so I get that. And yet the family and body of Christ is supposed to be the true family that we belong to, our, our primary family even. It's what our biological families can never be. It's supposed to be a taste of heaven, a taste of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like when Jesus does return. So, so we're in it together. I think that's the thing. Christians are a part of a family And that supersedes any allegiance to anything else that we belong to. So it doesn't mean that the family of God hasn't been wrong in the past, of course. Complicit in sins of culture and the ages, of course. This doesn't mean that the family, we don't get it wrong, just uh, even in our day-to-day. We do. do Do we need to improve in our ideology, our theology, our practice? Of course But we must recapture the idea that the church is a family and see one another through that lens first and foremost. I wonder what would happen if we viewed the church, this is Hope Chapel and beyond, as the primary place of belonging, as our primary family. How would that change the way we interacted with one another? It would change the way that we talk about social and political issues. It would change the way we engage in conflict. It would change the way that we trusted one another or distrusted one another. It would change the way in which we were in community together. We are a part of something bigger than our nuclear families, our political parties, our social ideologies, our personalities, and even our wants and desires. We are part of the family of God. So it's, it's to him and, and this people that we are aligned to more than anyone else. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this story. He, he does this thing where he positions one story, kind of he starts it, and then he stops it and he goes into another story. It's called a sandwich story is what uh, I guess commentators call it. Um, and it's a rhetorical device that Mark uses to show how these are two separate stories, one in the middle of another, but they're inextricably linked. And we're supposed to understand something about them both. And that's why they're sandwiched together. 
And he's showing us that the, 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 this family in Christ is deeper than ethnicity, blood, gender, personality, anything else that defines us or identifies us. And because he's made us into this family, today we're going to look at two things. First, we're called to reject the divisiveness of Satan's kingdom. And second, we must embrace the unity of Christ's kingdom. So, reject the divisiveness, embrace the unity. So first, reject the divisiveness. As I mentioned earlier, uh, our passage starts out um, as a separate story on top of the sandwich, right? So verse 20 begins with Jesus, his disciples entering a house, and uh, there's a crowd in the house so packed out that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat, right? It was not socially distant at all uh, on top of each other. And Jesus' family was concerned, and they go as far to question his mental health, and, and they try to enter the house to get him. And then Mark just stops that story, and he starts a new one. And he does this purposely. He, he wants us to know that people were confused about who Jesus was, what he was doing, so much so that even his own family was questioning his mental health. And then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they were also equally confused. So Jesus is setting up this like confusion kind of narrative about Jesus and what he was doing. Verse 21 says, um, the, or 22 says, The teachers of the law came to Jerusalem and said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So these teachers of the law had heard that he was casting out demons. And they had heard of his reputation, the size of the crowds that he was drawing to him. And they, they did have an obligation to investigate. They're like, well, who is this guy? And as I mentioned the other week, you know, there was no exorcisms or, or casting out demons in the Old Testament. So they're like, if this is happening, we need to know how it's happening. What's going on? So they come to investigate. Workers of magic, sorcery, evil spirits was forbidden by the law for rightly. And, and, and so if someone was gaining a following doing these things. They need to be called out. But we mentioned this a couple weeks ago when there was another exorcism story. Jesus never used incantations. He never used flowery words. He, he never used, um, you know, he never yelled. Typically when he cast demons out, he used the quiet confidence and just told them to leave. So the teachers of the law were like, well, if that's all he needs to do that. Their mind didn't go first to, oh, he must be like, the God-man with all authority in heaven and earth. No, they didn't go there. They went, oh, he must be Satan, <laughs> right? If he can command them that easily, then he must be Satan or the prince of demons at, uh, at best, Satan at worst. And Jesus, and, and this is actually really cool, I thought, um, because he answers them, their question logically, which is really funny. He, he uses a very logical argument. He's like, why would Satan drive out Satan? Satan, the whole point of Satan coming and his kingdom coming is to divide, to create chaos, to, to make people confused. And, and that's what his demons were doing. So why would Jesus, of all people, if he was Satan, why would he be driving out his own people? It's illogical. So Jesus makes that defense. And then he says this, which is interesting in verse 27. In fact, almost like furthermore, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So he's saying, what you're seeing is the beginning of the end of this kingdom. Someone stronger has entered the picture. Teacher of the law, you're missing it. Someone has stronger than that kingdom has entered into the picture. And it's him who's driving out Satan. Satan would never do that to himself. But me, I'm stronger. I have entered the picture. 
Jesus is the stronger king, entering the kingdom, tying up the opposing king, and driving him out. And he says this, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus turns it back to the teacher of the law and he says, you're calling the work of God through the Holy Spirit satanic. You are rejecting the sanctifying and healing work of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, your sins are not forgiven. You are guilty of an eternal sin by denying the work of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit over the life, your life and of the world. Now, what in the world does any of this have to do with the family of God? Right? I think in a word, everything. Everywhere we look in these verses, we see people trying to create division between Jesus and his work and his followers. Look at it this way. Jesus' family, when we started, they were outside the house. Uh, Jesus, uh, Mark does this purposefully. He, he created separation between Jesus and his family. This is a purposeful, that physical separation was symbolic of a spiritual separation that he was feeling with his family. They weren't aligned with him. They thought he was crazy. In the same way, the teachers of the law, they were also being divisive. They couldn't believe that someone was actually driving these demons out by the power of the Holy Spirit with the authority of God. So, what's the logical conclusion? Oh, he must be a demon. Their lack of faith led them to blaspheme against the God that they served. And then finally, Satan, the king of deception, was divisive. Demonic activity and possession was a tool used by Satan, as we mentioned, to create chaos, confusion, to divide people, pain. And Jesus had no time for it. So, so don't you see that there's a potential for division throughout this story everywhere. And yet Jesus, it's like he enters into every different spot and, and he rejects it at every point. He won't let his family cause division between him and his followers. He, he won't let religious leaders do it, and he wouldn't even let Satan do it. And I think my point is, is that we can't either. In fact, we must reject the division that comes from Satan and his kingdom every chance he gets, because there's no place for it in the family of God. You know, our, um, I, hope, I don't think this is a controversial statement, but um, our country is more polarized and divided right now than it's ever been in my lifetime, I think. And it's not even the election year hasn't really ramped up yet. I'm not sure the last time was this divided. I'm sure it was at some point, um, especially over a, a tough history that we have. Um, but it's never been this polarized since I've been alive. And it begs the question, I think, for all of us. That, that is the reality that we are all living in, all of us. What is the role of the church in the midst of that? What do we do in the midst of that? Is it to pick sides? Is it to ignore it? Is it to recede kind of into our own holy huddles? What's, what's our role? And here's what I think Jesus would say to us coming from this passage. He would say that God's people must reject the impulse for us as a family to be divided. He would say that our role is to choose to be a family in the midst of a culture that's trying desperately to divide everyone and everything. If everyone out there is going to be at each other's throats, we must show a new way, a different way. We must choose the way of Christ. We must. In this passage, I think I see three kind of subpoints of ways that Jesus does this. They're trust, humility, and grace. So trust. 
There's one thing that this passage actually lacks. It's trust. Jesus' own family didn't trust that he was sane of mind. The teacher of the law didn't trust him and thought he was the chief of demons. A lack of trust in one another and our brothers and sisters and our mothers and fathers causes division. Because it means we're questioning one another's motives. We're questioning one another's hearts. We don't trust that they have the best intentions for ourselves or for the kingdom. So my question to each of you is this. What, what does it look like to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about the ones who think differently than you or vote differently than you? Are those people still a part of your family? Church, especially between generations, we must grow in trusting one another. Trust is the thing that binds us, uh, that the thing that does bind us is more than politics, it's more than generational stereotypes, it's more than age. That which binds us transcends all of those things. It's because he's the king of the universe. He will not stand for our divisions, and I don't think we should either. A lack of trust in one another reveals a lack of trust in the king of the universe itself. But the second is humility. Um, Our call is to move towards our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in Christ in humility. Satan is the king of arrogance, right? His kingdom is here because he wanted to be God. He thought that he could do it better. He wanted to. He thinks his kingdom and his way is, is better than God and God's kingdom, and he wants to rule. So Jesus driving out demons is exhibit A, that that kingdom has no place here on earth. The end is coming. Jesus' kingdom is the upside-down kingdom, where weakness, uh, in weakness we find strength in Christ. In humility, we find confidence. In grace, we find salvation. So my question for this, for, for all of us, as we enter into this together... Can we imagine a world in which the, the person that thinks differently online, on the internet, in person, might have a real reason why they think the way they do? Right? A legitimate one? A world in which your brother or sister in Christ who, who thinks different than you might not be stupid or ignorant or naive, and they might actually have real reason for believing the things they do? What would it look like for us to listen in humility with one another, I wonder, and actually create that space What would it look like for us to speak with it, too? And finally, grace. And specifically, when I say grace, I mean grace for one another. Verse 29 says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. But if that's true, right, the inverse is also true. Whoever embraces the Holy Spirit will always be forgiven. So church, your brother and sister in Christ are going to hurt you. They're going to say and do hurtful things, both known and unknown. We all are going to do that to one another But we must have grace for one another, as Christ is grace for us. Grace is the opposite of divisiveness because it always gives the benefit of the doubt to the other person. Grace is always a rejection of divisiveness. Humility, grace, trust, they're essential to us rejecting Satan's kingdom. And if we're to be a family united under Christ, we must grow in these three areas. Let's not forget that. Okay, so Christ has made us the the people of God into a family. And because of this, we must reject the divisiveness of Satan's kingdom, and now we must embrace the unity of Christ's kingdom. So verse 31 says this, uh, uh, Jesus' mother and brother arrived, and they stand outside. They sent someone in to call him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brother are outside looking for you. So um, I, I don't want us to miss. Mark honestly does this purposely. He really wants us to see that physical distance and that spiritual distance that it was entailing, even in his biological family, the people that should know him best. And in their defense, right, they were confused. They were worried about his safety. They, he was in a house with a lot of people. He was getting very popular. It could have been a very precarious situation. Also, it sounds like he hadn't eaten in a while. They really wanted him to eat. He wasn't doing it. Um, so they were lacking trust and humility, right? Regardless, even if all that's true, they might have had good reasons. They were lacking that trust and humility that we reached a second ago because they thought what they wanted for Jesus was better than what he was doing. So we asked the question in response, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And he answers his own question saying, looking at the one seated in a circle around him, and he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. To Jesus, the only thing that ties us together deeper than blood is those who are partnering together to do God's will. Being a part of God's family is the only tie that unites us more than our own biological nuclear families do. So it begs the question, is he against the nuclear family, right? Is he against biological families? In Luke 14, listen to this. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying here? That's a tough word. This term hate, I think, is important for us to break down. In biblical terms, hate is often used in this way to show preference. So Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, didn't mean that God actually hated Esau. It just meant that for his purposes, he chose to give blessing to Jacob. He chose and preferred Jacob over Esau for his purposes. That doesn't mean he did not love Esau. He did. Hate implies preference. So in the same way, when Jesus says to hate our own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even our own life, he isn't saying to despise it, to dislike it even, or, or even to discard it. No, he's just saying that our love of our family is secondary to our love of God's family. Our commitment is first and foremost to the body and church of Christ and then to our own nuclear families. This is what unites us more than anything in the world, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, and he rose again so that all of this could be redeemed. And part of that redemption is this new creation, plural, of a family. This is what we unite under. This is the idea that we unite under. It does mean, I think, that we need to correct the way that we view our nuclear families. So, for a long time, the nuclear family has been an idol to evangelical culture. And not necessarily for bad reason or motives. As Christians, we do think the nuclear family is incredibly important to the kingdom of God. I mean, this is why we baptize babies, right? Especially in the call to be fruitful and multiply, to raise children in the will and way of the world. So don't hear what I'm not saying. It's incredibly important. But as modern culture grew exceedingly more and more fractured... And the sexual revolution happened, divorce became pervasive, abandonment and a rejection of family values happened in modern society. 
the church, the evangelical church, answered by highlighting the importance of family. And it should have done that. That was the right thing to do. But we allowed it to become an idol at the expense of the wider family of God. And by highlighting the importance of the biological nuclear family, this is what we did. We ended up excluding a large number of people. Singles, widows, widowers, orphans, those that grew up in non-Christian households, divorcees, those committed to celibacy, have often felt on the outside of the Christian community by our highlighting of the nuclear and biological family. And church, when we exclude Christians from our community, for any reason, we miss out on our commandment to be a family. We aren't a group of people that uh, are only identified by marriage and a couple kids. God's people are a family to everyone. What unites us together is not a, a keeping up with the Joneses mentality, but the blood of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to embrace unity together in Christ, we're going to have to be reminded and remember a few things. And the first is this. Unity does mean inclusion. If we unite under Christ as a family, then we must begin to act like it and make space for all of God's people. So all those image bearers that we talked about earlier, singles, divorcees, widows and widowers, people that grew non-Christians, that grew up in non-Christian household, orphans, committed to, those committed to a life of celibacy, we have to look at them as family members. We are their family and they are our family. We don't include them because it's the right thing to do. We include them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ and their inheritance in him is just as much as ours is. If they feel excluded, we're missing out on our familial calling. Think about it. The people who have struggled the most during this pandemic are our singles. More than anyone, singles understand that the church is a family because it's often their only family at times. So if we're going to be a true family in Christ, united under him, we must make space for our singles to care for them, to make them feel home, to not make them feel like they're on the outside, because they're not. They're our brothers and sisters in a way that's deeper than blood. Deeper than blood. And they have struggled. And have you reached out to them? Families, have you dropped food off? Have you maybe even broken a little social distancing and let them play with your kids a little bit? They brought them dinner. Families, they need you to be their family and we need them to be our family too. But unity as a family uh, includes others as well. It's inclusive of um, adoption is a Christian concept because it's including those without families into our biological families, and then hopefully also into the wider family of Christ, right? It's bringing someone not only that doesn't have a home into a home, but also into the most important family they could ever be a part of, the one in Christ. Diversity is a part of unity because in Christ, all tribes, races, and ethnicities are brought together, including the poor, the oppressed, the needy in our congregation is a part of what it means to be a family because even the poor and the oppressed are united to us in Christ through faith in Jesus. Inclusivity is so important to being a family. But it doesn't just mean inclusivity. It also means conflict. Conflict and unity aren't opposites. Actually, conflict can yield to greater unity if done within the family setting. 
Jesus and his biologically, biological family were in conflict in this scene. And actually, so much so that some commentators think that this maybe was James, who uh, was the leader of the early church. It was like Jesus and James were like butting heads. But we also know that's not true. Well, even if it was, James goes on to lead the early church, right? So if they were in conflict with one another, this strengthened that bond between them. But he didn't reject them. He showed them something that they needed to see when they question his sanity. That true family is found on those who do the will of God. And sometimes we will get in, Sometimes you, you have to get in it with your brother and sister. It happens. Sometimes I'm still getting in it with my real brothers and sisters today. But we do it as God's people so that we can better embrace unity. Conflict makes us stronger. So sometimes we do have to hit each other upside the head a little bit and make each other see sense. And that's okay. Please don't do that, honest, like for real. But, um, <laughs> but the point remains, unity and conflict are not at odds. They're vital to one another. It means inclusivity. Unity means conflict. And finally, it means connection. The best part of being a family is that you belong. Church, we belong together. We belong because Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again and making all things new. And we get to be the primary target of that restoration and that recreation. We are a family because of who and what he did. And, and so that is um, deep, deep connection that we have been given and gifted in Christ. Both with one another, but also with him. We are more alike than we are different. We must begin to see the church as a family because it's there that we connect with him and with one another. Inclusivity, conflict, connection. These areas are so important for us to unite under Christ, to be a family. So church, let's go get it. I think um, to that moment on the Savannah River, sun setting behind the background, and that smile on Aaron's face. But um, she had found what she was looking for, and they, her. Um, I think that she was so relieved and so happy in that moment because her need was great. Sometimes I worry we have forgotten our need for the family of God. We have forgotten our great need for one another. Mothers and fathers of the faith, we need you to come alongside the younger generation and help guide them as they're navigating life in 2020. We need you to do that. We don't know what we're doing, okay? And we need you guys. We need your wisdom. We need your experience. We need it. Brothers and sisters of the faith, our mothers and fathers need you. We need, they need you to help interpret all that's going on in the world. They need your passion and your energy and your strength. They need you. We need each other. No political party, club, group of friends, social identity. And yes, even our nuclear families are going to give us what we need. Our, what our hearts need. What our lives need. What we truly need. What our souls need. And that is the body of Christ. One thing that I love about Hope Chapel is that we are a multi-generational church. That's a gift. And that is something that Michael and Todd 
wanted from the very beginning. Let's be that together. Let's push into that multi-generational piece. Let's meet together. Let's get coffee together. Let us as a church help as we feel the polarization of culture pressing in all around us. Let us help the family of God be the family of God. That is my hope for us. So church, let's go get it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you um, have created in us a family a family um, where we can belong, a family where we can um, reject divisiveness and embrace unity, Father. So that's going to be hard. It's a hard task. And yet, God, we know through your strength and your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that it can happen. So, Father, unite us together. Um, and as we move in and through 2020, and no one really knows how to do that, God, go before us and let us rest in your sovereignty, upholding all things. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.